All right, guys, what's going on? So welcome to today's episode. This is part two where I'm sitting down with Astrid, where we're going to be talking all about uh, health foods and misconceptions. So this is, like I said, the second iteration. If you haven't heard the first one yet, definitely go back and make sure you check it out. Uh, but this one is going to kind of stand on its own. So if you haven't heard the first one, you don't necessarily need to in order to understand what we're talking about in this one. So as always, if you enjoy the podcast, make sure you snap the, sorry, smash the subscribe button and turn on notifications to let you know every time a new episode drops. So first of all, Astrid, thanks so much for jumping back on. It's awesome to have you back. Um, can you just give a, a quick rundown of, of who you are and kind of what you've been doing for those who maybe don't know who you are? Yes, thank you for having me. I am very glad to be here today. Um, basically, I... I don't know, I could give you a long story or a short story, but I will give you the short story. Probably um, we have to go a lot of, uh, through. So I basically became a dietitian nine years ago. Um, and I, funny enough, I just wanted to be a dietitian. Probably once I started actually the, the degree, because I wanted to just learn how to make menus and diets and lose weight that was my old perspective of what nutrition was until I actually studied nutrition and understood that it was way more beyond just dieting and losing weight so basically becoming in love with my career and once I graduated I did a little bit of work as a private practice dietitian and did some nutrition workshops on sports nutrition and general nutrition for general population. And I was for about two years and then I moved to Australia, did my master's degree and I started working. Once I finished, I started working in a clinical uh, setting as a clinical dietitian in a rehab hospital. And I've been there for about three years, four years almost. I, I started in 2017, so yeah four years and well basically that's where I started and along with all of that I always I always have been doing like one-on-one -on -one coaching so I've been trying try working with people through uh either one-on-one -on -one in in like in person or online and my my way or my style of coaching has evolved as well over the years the more I learn all the things I kind of think that nourish nourishes this online um, coaching skills so that's also something that I'm very very excited and passionate about and currently I am working as a nutrition coach for team biolane um, and that's something that is also really cool so yeah that's that's where I am at the moment um, I don't know if you want me to speak a little bit more about my my story, but I think uh, it is my condensed version. That's awesome. I actually had no idea that you were working with uh, with Lane and, and his team. Yeah. How long have yeah. you been here for? I think it's been like four months. I, I, we just they they just opened like two new they, the two coaches changed. Um, and then uh, we started, me and another coach started as a part of the, the new team. So, yeah, very, very exciting. That's awesome. Congratulations. Yay. 
<laughs> so just to dive right into it, um, what are some of the primary differences between organic and conventional foods? Because I know that's something that has been discussed, but people still tend to have questions and kind of misconceptions around the differences between the two and the pros and cons of both. Yeah, I think it is important to define what organic actually means. And organic refers to like how, how farmers grow and process their food and the methods they use that probably will differ from the conventional farming. But basically, when we think about organic is, I think they have tried to make it like this is life-changing, uh, complete, completely magical, there's nothing bad about it, but it actually is not as great as it seems it is. Uh, and on top of it, we are adding uh, extra pressure on people's budget because organic is quite much more expensive to have than a conventional food. And when, when it comes to really looking at the nutritional aspect there is a very small difference between these two, between organic and conventional. And usually when it comes to looking at small details in terms of micronutrients, there are several studies that have shown that the difference are small. Uh, some of those might be a little bit relevant, but when it comes to, to look at the full whole diet and you can just try to be smart about planning and combination of different um, products, vegetables, fruit, and other, other foods, you could just get the right amounts for you without necessarily depending or relying or, on organic. If you have the ability to pay more and you like organic food, by all means, go for it. But I don't think there's a huge difference. So when we think about specifically like um, what, what conventional farming uses versus like the organic version of it. They, we, we, we see that they utilize like chemical fertilizers uh, to make the plant grow. They use sprays and pesticides, but organic farmers use sometimes pesticides too. It doesn't mean like pesticides on their own are going to kill you if you have a conventional food on pesticides because the levels of pesticides are very, very small and tolerable for the human uh, organism. Like it's not going to be detectable um, to be harmful for human health. Then we also look at conventional farming as like they use herbicides to manage weeds and they, when raising animals, conventional farmers probably give like they will provide antibiotics, growth hormones, medications to prevent disease. Um, and even though it sounds like, oh, you put in so much chemicals in these animals, sometimes it's actually good because uh, having, uh, having your animals with like a disease and you can provide them with the right treatment, you will provide them with longer life. And sometimes organic farmers struggle with this because they are trying to stay in their line. But the only way that they can put for example, if you have a, a cow and the cow is sick and they are not able to provide adequate treatment, they either have to sell it or get rid of it somehow. 
because they won't be able to use it productively if it's sick. So it is just a little bit controversial whether actually organic is better or not when it comes to looking at um, like the fauna and, and your all animals in general. Some, sometimes you could say, yeah, it is looking after the environment, but they actually use more landfill than the conventional. So I don't know whether that actually plays a, a little bit of a controversial role when it comes to looking at whether organic is actually beneficial. So if we, we, thought, we were thinking about the, the, the answer that everyone wants to hear, I think uh, just going a little bit more into what actually makes organic so good or is it organic actually healthier? Should I, should I change it? And as I said uh, at the beginning, it is clear that organic is obviously probably is better for the environment, but is it better for you? Um, that's still up for debate because people, um, the, the evidence that is out there is, is not necessarily very strong. Um, there is a lot of complexity, complexity involved. Like when we look at conventional farming, you see these, all these things like farming practices and the pesticides, antibiotics, hormones affect food and things like that. Um, but it, there's no really something that you could, couldn't say, well, there's no control over it. Um, there's lots of different um, standards and rules that play and give these um, this products, uh, especially coming from a, a conventional farming, that are going to make these regulations very tight and they will still need to go through a process of inspection before they actually can even get to the human um, access and being like in stores or supermarkets. So I think one thing that experts seem to agree on is that when it comes to fruit and vegetables, more is better. So when, when we think about conventional produce versus more organic and things like that, just eat what is available. Sometimes we think we, we get into this, oh, I should be eating conventional and if I, I, organic. And if I don't eat organic, then I better not eat anything. So you're missing out of a lot of things just because you think something is superior when it is not. So the benefit of adding any fruit or vegetables, even if it's frozen or canned, they are going to be beneficial for you if that's what you can access. If you have the access and the budget to get organic, by all means, you can have it, but it doesn't mean like it is going to really make a huge difference. So yeah, that's my take on that. Yeah, and you brought up a couple of really interesting things. And so for me personally, like I was a chef for eight years in, in fine dining um, in, in Canada and then also in Asia. And we would regularly have to go and visit the farms that we'd, uh, we'd source our, our food from uh, just to make sure that they did have certain standards and things like that. So a lot of the times, like, cause I, I've seen this and I'm sure you've probably seen this too, especially on things like documentaries where they'll show, I don't know, a slaughterhouse and they just show like all of this horrific stuff going on. And it's like, that's not representative of conventional farming or, you know, normal, like, cattle ranchers or anything like that. It's like, this is gross, 
malpractice. It's absolutely illegal. It, it's very rare to actually see that sort of stuff go on, but that's kind of represented on the whole as this is what goes on in, you know, cattle rancher farms or whatever, or, um, you know, in conventional, they just spray excess amounts of pesticides and do A, B, and C. And it just doesn't really happen like that, right? I, I'm sure that does happen, but it's certainly not representative of the larger body of like agriculture. And uh, until you've actually been to a farm or a ranch or something like that, and you see how, like you said, they, they've got very, very strict procedures. And obviously some people are going to be bypassing them, but I think for the most part, they do a pretty good job, you know, because that is their livelihood as well, right? It, it doesn't make any sense for them to sacrifice their livelihood to inject more drugs into the cows. For what reason? It would just cost them more. It just doesn't really make any sense, right? Um, but one of the things that I actually did want you to touch on, and I think this is probably the bigger point of contention when people are talking about the differences between organic and conventional isn't necessarily like the nutritional content, although that is part of the conversations more around like the, the sort of accumulation of pesticides, because a lot of the arguments that I've heard are, okay, well, sure, this might be safe on an apple, but if I'm eating apples, pears, carrots, and all of this other stuff, doesn't the concomitant, concomitant volume accumulate and become potentially dangerous? Can you, can you kind of speak on that? Uh, I think to be honest, I, I have never had any issues with conventional foods to be precisely looking at what is like affecting all these pesticides accumulating. The level of each pesticide is very small. And there are also like, you have to use also practices of uh, food food preparation, uh, food safety, hygiene. So you also need to do your part. Um, so it's kind of a two-way two -way thing, two-way relationship. Even, even if you have a, a organic foods, you have some level of contamination of pesticide anyway. So you have to be aware of like your food safety and the procedures you have to use to make foods uh, safer. Uh, for your health but before you even get to your hands it, again as you mentioned there has been so many uh, strict procedures to control and standardize how much is acceptable if any product goes um, or passes the um, tolerable level of, um, of pesticide that is known dangerous or acceptable then you can see that this food is not going to pass the test and is going to be discarded or eliminated, but it's not going to access or go to the next step. So I think it is important to see that these food regulations are actually very, uh, very important. And for the most part, that's why you see like people who have never had access to organic, they will still eat and get nutrition and have perfect perfect health uh, when it comes to again it is hard to say that you will have a disease because of pesticides just because health is so complex and it relies on so many different factors that it is very hard to pinpoint oh you just have a toxicity for from pesticides and it's rarely seen that you'll have someone in the ER just because they had an excessive amount of pesticide from an apple. It's just very hard to say. Um, to begin with, people wouldn't eat 
that much vegetables anyway. Uh, it's not like you're giving them fries or burgers. Like people struggle to even meet two serves of fruit a day and five serves of vegetables. So it is even harder for them to get to the point that they are going to get toxic levels from eating carrots or vegetables or apples. So, yeah, I don't think there, is, there, there should be much concern when it comes to this particular accumulation of pesticides because there is, there is a very good control over that. Yeah, I love how you brought up some practical limitations as well, just like the, the, the lack of adherence to, you know, typically what we call a well-balanced diet, including, you know, a variety of fruits and vegetables. It, it just doesn't really happen. And it's kind of funny because, you know, our own internal biases can really skew our judgment because, so full disclosure, I used to eat exclusively organic everything, not just veggies, meat, everything for like eight years when I was fighting, like I was a real hippie back then. And, you know, I would do everything that I could to kind of get any potential advantage and it cost me so much, but I really, really believed that. And then now it's really funny because I had a lot of friends even back then who would be so concerned about, you know, pesticides on foods and whether something was, you know, quote unquote natural. Meanwhile, they're 50 pounds overweight and they don't exercise. And it's like, well, what do you think is going to have a greater impact on your health? Right. And so it's, it's really funny sometimes where people choose to focus their attention because although this is obviously, you know, it's an interesting thing to talk about. It's nowhere near the top in terms of like the list of, of priorities that you need to focus on that are going to have the most significant impact on your health, on your performance and, and, and so on. So, um, yeah, just kind of as, as sort of like a practical aside there. Um, one thing that uh, I also wanted to, to get your feedback on was discussing our, I guess, ability to adapt to different food environments. So I know like I lived in Korea, I lived in, in Indonesia, and I just could not eat the food over there. No matter how much I tried, I just had like IBS for basically the entire time that I lived there. But uh, I know that a lot of people sometimes can, you know, they have concerns about eating foods that, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, we didn't necessarily grow up on, you know, which is funny because in Canada, you know, we don't have bananas here. We don't have pineapples, things like that, but people are fine eating those. But I, I, I guess, you know, just kind of looking at the, the paleolithic diet and kind of things like that, where that is sort of entrenched in that sort of diet culture. Can you just kind of speak to that? me i would say that body the body is so smart and so adaptable uh, it will always try to find a way to adapt to whatever is provided so same way when you're dieting the body doesn't know what's happening but he's going to adapt the way the body can to pro to provide your balance your, your body balance and survival same with happens when you move and there's only certain foods available. Obviously, if you have a condition that is going to limit absorption, digestion, it is going to be a problem depending on the food combinations and the foods you're eating. And for the most part, the selection of those. So knowing that you, if you have a, a particular condition like IBS, obviously, if you change completely the food you were eating to a new range of products, you will have to learn which ones sit, sit you well and which ones won't, 
there, there are some foods that you probably won't be able to digest well. Um, and this probably is not just because of um, a long-term, like you've been adapted to a, a, a specific diet for so long that suddenly you change. Um, and if you think about utilizing food as like it is going to um, affect your health, there's no specific food that is going to affect your health on its own. It's again, it is that complex multifactorial um, perspective you got to see that it is not just one thing. Like I see people like, oh, I, I moved to, like when I moved to Australia, for example, I used to live in South America and moved to Australia. My diet, you could say the change uh, somehow uh, in a big proportion because obviously I was not eating as much grains. I was eating uh, food that I was not preparing anymore. I was just buying it pre-made. Uh, but I was in the, initially was kind of blaming that I was gaining weight because of it. But I wasn't paying attention to my 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 lifestyle change completely. I was more stressed. I had more things to do. I was at uni again, studying for my master's degree. I was not having a good regular meal pattern. I had a background of binge and restrict for so long that when I came here and I felt, well, now that I know one knows me, who cares? I'm going to eat and I'm going to allow myself to eat whatever I want. And suddenly I was um, just eating more than I should have. And I was gaining weight, but it's not like I was, like it could go and blame that, oh, it's a change now because every time you move to another country, you will... Uh, gain weight or you will uh, start experiencing issues with your GI it is going to be very individual and the response that you have to specific foods but you obviously the, the grow the, how people grow and the farming and the different vegetables and different ways that these foods are cultivated and grown might be different uh, and the practices might be different to other places, but at the end of the day, again, it comes down to exploring what is going to feel good and what is what is going to be you're going to be able to digest without issues. And learning that if you have a specific condition, you have to pay attention to that. Like I know I have IBS, I wouldn't. I know that I can have certain things that have. Uh, high FODMAPs so you if you know that certain foods may have a high FODMAP level then you pay attention to not eating as much of those foods sometimes you have a, t a certain level of tolerance uh, and like when you have IBS you have a, a decent amount of tolerance for each foods even if they are they are high FODMAPs so once you surpass that threshold of tolerance is when you start having symptoms. Uh, same happens with like lactose intolerance. You, even if you have lactose intolerance, you have, I don't know whether it's genetically, but like biologically, you have a, a certain level of tolerance that you can still have milk in a very small amount and perhaps you don't surpass that threshold. But once you start finding what the tr that threshold is, you can be smart in either just staying 
under that threshold or finding other sources that are lower FODMAP. Um, that way you will be able to eat, enjoy, and not go through like very, very uh, IBS symptoms overall. And so what does literature say on dairy? Because I know people have mixed feelings about it. Some people are lactose intolerant. Other people just have sensitivities. But generally speaking, if we exclude some of those individual outliers, what does the literature say on the efficacy or the safety and, and benefits and, well, I guess, pros and cons of consuming dairy products? I would say this is going to be a, a debate that is going to last forever. Uh, some people are going to blame dairy to be bad for you because of the pesticides, because of the hormones, because of um, the pus, because of, I don't know, you know, antibiotics, use of all of those things. And at the end of the day, it comes back to the same answer I gave you with conventional um, organic foods. Like milk is also very tightly regulated. And in that case, when we think about these old additions and the processing and how it's um, managed in, in the farm, it is very, very good and well-managed. Now, when it comes to really looking at the nutritional aspect, for me, like milk is one of the most complete food sources that you can ever have because it, it is uh, a high, a good, really good source of um, different type of fats. Like you will find that they, there's a, like almost a 400 different fatty acids in, in milk. Um, in, in dairy, you will find from saturated fat to monosaturated to unsaturated fats. Um, you could have, you could find linolenic acid. You could find different different type of fats that are diabetes protective that have diabetes protective properties. We find that it has lactose. It has other carbohydrates. It has protein, and it is a great source of whey in monoglobulins, casein. So milk is so complete, it's so full of minerals and vitamins as well. Like it is a rich source of magnesium, calcium, phosphorus, potassium. We find that it has vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin K, B vitamins. Like it is so rich that it is something that you can't just deny that is very important to include in your diet just because it's so nutrient dense that that surpasses way more than just thinking about whether it's bad for your health or not so the short answer about dairy and health is like it is going to always depend on the context but it's complicated like again our diets overall are more determining and important than just one thing like just dairy by itself how is your lifestyle what is the environment what are your genetics your age um, your your activity activities on a daily basis and so on it's like it's so many things that you have to consider before you even pinpoint some foods or something like it's bad so there's not going to be a single factor that is going to determine your health or your fitness or your body composition so dairy is a very small part of this bigger picture. 
So I don't know. I think it is important for you to this like think about certain things whether you want to kind of think whether choosing dairy is good for you in the first place. Like you want to understand that there are products that you might, that might sit well with you and some others don't. Like there are products like you have lactose intolerance. There are products that will have higher lactose content and others won't. You can find, um, a, like try to consider choosing a combination of like fermented and cultured dairy that will also provide probiotics um, like kefir, uh, H cheeses, um, yogurt, cultured dairy that will also will always provide a little bit of extra nutrition apart from what they already have. Read labels if you're unsure of a specific allergies you might have, like um, if you have dairy allergy or casein, uh, a casein reaction, or you just don't sit well, it doesn't sit well with you. It's fine, just find an alternative, but be aware of, of the, the things that you need to pay attention to to begin with. And always, I would say, just you have to keep things in perspective. You have, like eating, healthy eating doesn't require perfection. You don't have to be complicated. Um, it is mostly something you have to kind of relax about it and think that you... If you want to eat dairy, you could always include it and it's fine for you to have it because it's very nutritious and energy and nutrient dense for the most part. So it will support your bones. It will help you to reduce it. There's evidence to suggest that this, it helps lowering the risk of obesity and type 2 diabetes. There are several studies that help suggest that will be quite protective for heart disease. So I, I can't just say good things about it. Well, you're clearly being sponsored by, uh, by the dairy executives. So. Oh yeah, probably. <laughs> um, so what, what does literature say about gluten outside of celiac disease? Is it harmful or does it have any specific benefits from a nutritional standpoint to individuals who don't have a gluten intolerance or sensitivity? Well, that's a good question because nowadays we see that the amount of gluten-free food consumption has increased. Like it is incredibly impressive. Like over the past probably 30 years, like the gluten-free food industry has got richer and richer just by promoting uh, gluten-free diets, gluten-free products that seem to be better for you. So again, this is, this, this is really challenging and sometimes very, it's put into debate why uh, are people avoiding gluten in the first place? And there are reasons to avoid gluten if you have celiac disease or you have a gluten intolerance. Um, but if you don't have issues with this, it will come back to the same answer. You could just choose to have it if you want to pay more because there are a couple of studies that have reported probably you can pay, like at, at least in Australia, you pay 
around $1,000 to $2,000 a year just to go gluten-free and just eating the same things. And when it comes to really looking at the nutritional content, you're actually changing a more nutrient-dense option when you find or you eat foods that contain gluten. Uh, though to like when you compare that to the, the similar option that has been uh, completely changed to gluten-free. So I would say at the end of the day, you think you if you think you have an issue with with gluten, it is the only way that would just will justify you going gluten free, unless you want to just do it because it's your own preference. But it's not going to be any superior or any healthier to do it that way. So I guess a lot of people don't know what gluten even is. So gluten refers to this family of proteins that um, constitute like a storage protein in, in the starchy endosperm of many cereals, grain, like wheat, bar barley, rye. Um, and this is, this is a, a practical protein that provides a specific uh, characteristics to these grains, like by uh, viscoelasticity, um, make them higher, more palatable and some specific texture. So when you see this, this being removed, you have to put something else to provide the same conditions to the food. So obviously sometimes it actually goes, uh, you have to put a um, combination of sugar and other type of um, powders that will make the food decently similar in terms of the texture and, and the viscosity as well as the taste. So is it worth it? I don't think it is when it comes to look at health. Um, like, is it beneficial? It will only be beneficial if you do actually have an issue like celiac disease. One of the uh, really popular diets is obviously like a vegan and vegetarian diet. And sometimes they get criticism for maybe not necessarily being as healthy as other diets. Uh, I know the literature shows that it's fairly equivocal. And I think there's actually a slight bias towards vegan diets, potentially showing slightly better health effects in the long run. Um, but there's obviously some practical limitations. It is a very strict diet. It does require a lot of additional effort. And so could you just give a little bit of a breakdown of some of the more common, not pitfalls, but just maybe things that you need to be aware of, especially from like a deficiency standpoint or, you know, requiring specific supplementation because you're not necessarily getting any nutrition from, from animal-based products? If you're a vegan or vegetarian, but you really pay attention to, to the planning and the, the combination of foods, and you do your, your kind of your homework to make sure you're not missing anything out of your diet, you can be very successful and have a really balanced, well-balanced diet to begin with, even if you're not really getting like animal sources uh, for protein or other vitamins or minerals to begin with. But someone that is not paying attention to the details, uh, the planning, 
and the combination of foods uh, or the sources of certain micronutrients that are essential for your body, you might get into trouble. So for the most part, the ones that seems to be at higher risk, like the, 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 the nutrients that seems to be a higher risk for deficiency tend to be B vitamin, uh, specifically B12, iron, omega-3 fatty acids that obviously come for the most part, the DHA, which is the, the most specific one coming and available from uh, fatty fishes, um, vitamin D, specifically those that are available from fat, fatty fish, egg yolks, uh, cod liver, these kind of things. Um, calcium, creatine as well, and obviously the protein content, like a, a, a good quality protein that contains you know, leucine, uh, all these different essential amino acids. If you're smart about it, again, you can really get well with just a well-balanced diet, making sure this is provided in your diet somehow, whether it's via supplements or a combination of food sources um, or being able to kind of like be a little bit more flexible with your approach. Um, for example, if someone who is vegetarian um, could be just like pescatarian, can add the, the fish in there or someone who is vegan, they still allow some level of dairy in their diet. I, I, I know I doubt it is going to be potentially feasible, but if they uh, allow that flexibility, that allows the balance of the diet to be a little bit better. However, again, if you can plan really well and identify whether you might be at risk of certain nutrients, you could easily supplement it. Um, and if we're thinking about, well, how do I get my protein? A good supplement, a good supplement is never um, an extra uh, or an additional. So you can always add protein powder, uh, whether it's like a plant-based source, but make sure it has a good combination. And for the, for the most part, there seems to be uh, a good amount of protein powders that show good, decent level of um, essential amino acid combinations and good quality. So I think for the most part, that's, that's key. Uh, creatine obviously is uh, very, very popular and gets, um, you find it for the most part in animal sources, especially in, in meat. So if you don't eat meat, you're unlikely to get the adequate amount of, of creatine and creatine has shown to be beneficial way beyond performance also for your brain health and overall health. So creatine should be, should, should be there as well. So if you can supplement creatine, that's going to be beneficial too. So it's a little bit of everything, but for the most part, you have to pay attention to that vitamin D omega-3 fatty acids, making sure you, you're not going to get any iron deficiency. So either finding plant sources, plant-based sources that are iron rich, but you also need to include certain strategies to make sure that iron, non-heme iron is viable and you, you can get more out of that source. 
and uh, absorb it, obviously, and utilize it. The B12, you probably will need to supplement it for the most part because it's richer in in food sources that are come, come from animal sources. Um, and yeah, I think the calcium is not as difficult to find in certain plant-based sources, but you, you could probably need to look for these sources and find them, make sure you have a list of those potential food sources and you can just get it from plant-based um, equivalents or you will need to supplement it. And it's available anyway. There's supplement for everything. <laughs> yeah, I think supplements can be especially beneficial for, for vegans, depending on what their athletic goals are, because especially if you're looking to lose weight and you're trying to get enough calories in without using supplements, it can be very hard to meet your protein targets because while you're increasing your protein targets, you simultaneously will have to increase your carbohydrate intake as well, which can make things a little bit difficult if you're, you know, trying to lose weight or just, I don't know, if, if you have some potential GI issues with consuming a certain amount of carbohydrates, especially specific types. Um, I was wondering if you could give a little bit of a breakdown of saturated fat, unsaturated, and then also trans fats and kind of give some consumption guidelines for just general health and uh, yeah, just general health. Uh, but what specifically about saturated, like the, the fats? Oh, sorry. So um, essentially differentiating each one of those, uh, just again, kind of like a high-end conceptual level uh, differentiation. And then, you know, some of the concerns, I know people are somewhat concerned about trans fats and, you know, what sort of detrimental effects they might have on health and cardiovascular health and things like that. Yeah, sure. So when it comes to fats, we have obviously the different, the, the different type of saturated, the different fat type of fats. And we look at saturated fats is mostly prevalent and available in animal sources. Unsaturated fats seem to be more common in plant-based seeds, oils, um, that obviously are not necessarily animal-based. And then we look at trans fats are those that are has seems to be modified by on their nature by human impact so human there's a human aspect that is changing the fat by itself so trans fat comes from hydrogenation of the molecule of the molecule of the fat uh, as the fatty acid and that makes a, a biochemical change in the structure which is kind of not recognized by the body when you consume it. So it seems to accumulate or not be in process as other fatty acids in your blood. And that's why a lot of people seem to find that trans fats affect the health overall on the long term if they consume a lot of it. But again, all of these things have to be seen into perspective, whether you're consuming uh, trans fat or saturated fats or saturated fats overall um, eating fats uh, is something that is essential at least 0.5 grams per kilogram of your body weight be requires to be allocated to fat consumption and you want to have a, a good combination of fats like saturated fats even though they have a bad rap they are they have l 
decently shown that they are they will still play beneficial roles when it comes to your health as long as you're not over consuming it or your diet is based solely on saturated fats so unsaturated and saturated fats play a role in your health and the different functionalities they they might be part of when when we think about all the benefits and roles of fat in your in your body like um just by the fact of being part of your cells of your cell walls your um your system your your chemic brain system um when you when we think about the hormones that are that require an aspect of fats as well there's plenty of different things like the phospholipids that we see in our body that are are part of our combination of like this pool of different proteins that our body creates and utilizes for different things so we, when we think about it you the ideally the ideal recommendation is to make sure you for the most part have a I would say no more than 10% of your total calorie intake coming from saturated fats and the unsaturated fats being like if your total calorie intake from fats is 30%, 35%, no more than that is recommended. Um, you want to have that 10% of saturated fats and the other percentage coming from unsaturated fats. And that kind of seems to align with a good health outcome when it comes to getting these different food sources and the recommendations of uh, trying to choose leaner meats, leaner meats or leaner protein sources. And you increase the consumption of like seeds, avocado, um, um, nuts, nuts and like oils that could be for the most part, just very limited. I think in my general recommendation is if you can just add these food sources that are richer in fat, but they are actual foods and you can reduce the, the frequency that you consume like higher fat cuts uh, from like meats and things like that, you will be, you will have a really good ratio of, saturated fat intake and unsaturated fat without overcomplicating it. You probably, if you're trying to lose weight or staying in, in a, a weight that you want to maintain for long term, adding extra oil or extra fats on top of what you, you're getting naturally from foods is probably not beneficial, but it doesn't mean that you can add it somehow as long as it's kind of fitting within decent portion sizes i i know i've seen people like no i'm dieting and they when you see their salads they pouring oil on their salads and not it's not necessarily very healthy so again it comes down to looking at the combination and paying attention to what foods, food sources are for the most part healthier um, in terms of the composition of such uh, fats, uh, fat ratio, so unsaturated fats will def definitely be part of and 
research shows that you will have better outcomes uh, in the long term if your diet is based on unsaturated fats over saturated fats. Hopefully that makes sense. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely does. And I think, again, just to kind of reiterate, I think the, the sort of common theme throughout this episode and even the previous episode is just context, right? Like, you know, I think you can kind of debate for hours and hours and hours whether or not conventional or organic is going to be superior or better for you. But at the end of the day, it's like exactly like what you mentioned earlier. What do you do? Like, are you even exercising? Because if you're not even exercising, I don't think the conversation about whether or not you should eat organic food should really even be on the on the table, right? Like, it's it's yeah. obviously very low on the priority scale. So it's like, I think all of these things can be interesting, and I think they can be definitely helpful and help kind of guide uh, dietary decisions. But it obviously needs to be taken within the the broader context of your nutrition, your lifestyle, your exercise, and, you know, just physical activity habits and things like that. So um, I think you did a really great job at laying out some, some pretty good fundamentals and some great recommendations for, for people in general. So where can people find you, Astrid? Um, well, there's, I have, I've got my website. So Astrid, um, I always struggle with this description, but it's like a dash. I think it's a dash. Maybe. I don't know. So it's astrid-dietitian.com. My Instagram is where I'm the most active. Uh, So anti-diet underscore dietitian. And I have a Spanish version of Instagram. So to coach, to coach dot nutrition, nutrition, nutritional. Well, it's in Spanish, so it's hard to say it Um, in English. And that's basically where I am uh, based on. And I have my YouTube channel where I put a lot of different interviews uh, that I'm doing with different personalities and great, great guests from the fitness industry. So you can find some good, good information and great resources as well there. That's where I'm mostly in. But Instagram is where I move the most and I post daily great tips and nutrition so this where you can find me straight away awesome so all that stuff is going to be linked up in the show notes guys again please make sure that you subscribe and like this give us a great rating if you like the episode and make sure you go give astrid a follow she puts out lots of great content on the regular um she's had a ton of guests on her uh, on her ig live that uh We've had a lot of the same guests, actually, but you've had, you've actually, I've seen you have a handful of guests that I've actually never even heard of. And it actually put me on some really interesting um, new information, new individuals that I hadn't heard of before. So I guess I should say thank you. So definitely go make sure you check her out, give her a follow and show some love. Astrid, thanks so much for jumping on. Thank you so much for having me again. And it was a pleasure.